I'd like for you to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll look again at verses 1, 2, and 3. The title of this little series is The Joy Set Before Us. And it begins in verse 1, Wherefore we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, seeing that we are, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then it tells us to consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your own minds. And a lot of people seem to do that on a regular basis. It's easy to give up. Now, Jesus had joy set before him. We began there. What he saw, what was promised, and what was given required him, first of all, to live a life he lived in order to obtain that, and he did that. And he went through a whole lot of difficult, desperate suffering in order for that to be achieved, but he did it. And therefore, he has set before us also joy, something joyful, something that brings joy, joyful life. Joy has been given to us. It's costly. Not everybody finds it. Not everybody obtains it. But it's nevertheless there. It's like what the book of Proverbs says about attend to his word, incline your ear into his sayings. He said, for they are life to those that find them. Not everybody finds it. A lot of people complain about their life and not having a good life or the abundant life or a joyful life or a peaceful life. But the promise is nevertheless there if you'll meet the conditions, but you'll have to search for it. We said last week about the joy that was set before us that there are two hindrances, two impediments, two things that will impede our walk. One is every weight, and secondly is the sin which doth so easily beset us. And it seems to be implying in this verse that if you're walking around with certain kinds of weights, whatever is meant in the spiritual realm by weights, because nobody carries barbells around. But because we're running a race, you couldn't run a race and do well if you were carrying barbells either. It's like we're in a race and you've got to run this race with the idea of winning, not just being in it. Some people run in a marathon so they can get a t-shirt that says, I ran. But there are those who run in order to win and obtain the prize. And if we're going to run the race that God has put us in and not be spectators sitting in the stands, but those who are pursuing a prize, you're going to have to realize you're going to have to get rid of some stuff. And one of those we mentioned last week was weights. Now, these weights, while they're often contrasted with habits and stuff like that or attitudes, they could be simple things like unforgiveness. I mean, who hasn't had a bad moment in your life where somebody did you wrong, slandered your name, took you to court, robbed your house, stole something? Did you really wrong? Divorce, a breakup of some sort in which insulting and ugly things were spoken or ugly things were done to each other in disregard of somebody's feelings and nobody cared about yours, so they did what they did. 
or an accident. Somebody harms somebody else, beat your child up or a wreck somewhere and nothing was ever done. And you've got this bitter feeling in your life and this resentment. It becomes a real hindrance. Because you see, you don't walk around acting bitter all the time, but when certain subjects come up, you can't control the emotion that you feel, this anxiety and this ugliness that you feel. That becomes a real hindrance to your Christian walk because that will keep you from running the race. Again, I believe God will see to it that in this life, all of us are gonna have reasons to be upset with people. And unforgiveness is an ugly thing to carry around. Sometimes just a mention of somebody's name in your past causes you to come out with a lot of bad stuff. You say a lot of bad things about people. In fact, when you're always talking about the same people all the time, you've never forgiven those people. Remember what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us as we forgive our debtors or those who sin against us. Which interpreted means if we don't forgive people who have wronged us, then do not forgive us for all the wrongs that we have done you. That would mean you're still in your sins. Jesus said, when you stand praying in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he said, and when you stand praying, forgive. For if you will not forgive anybody of anything, this is what he said, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. Now, you can go to church with that attitude. You can preach sermons and be a preacher. You can read your Bible and study and learn a lot of things. You can memorize scripture and impress people with your abilities. But you've got something lodged in your heart that God sees. It's called bitterness. It becomes a root. It begins to bear fruit. It's what keeps you ugly acting and ugly feeling about people. It's why you slander certain people. It's why you keep telling the same stories over and over about the person who wronged you, that ex-husband, ex-wife, or whatever, boyfriend, girlfriend, family across the street, that kid. And you never get over it. And you can't grow. You can't go forward, let alone win this race. Somebody's convinced you that as long as you're in the race, you're all right. It doesn't matter what church you go to, even what you believe or how you feel. Just as long as you go to church, you're all right. That's not true. God has outlined very clearly in his word, not only that we're in a race, but as we're running this race, the things that he's going to do, he is a refiner. He is a purifier. He is like, Jesus in you is like refiner's fire. He is purging and cleansing the sons of Levi. He speaks his word to you and how you react to that word depends on whether or not the word does what it's supposed to do. He said clearly in Ephesians 5 that the church, those who will comprise the church at the end, will be washed and cleansed by the washing of water by his word. Some people take it or leave it. Some people don't need it, don't even care if they hear it or not, rarely attend to listen to it. No big deal, never read, never think about it. They don't need it, and therefore they can't be cleansed. You can be in the race and have a uniform. You can be in the crowd that's running, but you'll never win because you're not running the way you have to run. You've got to get rid of these weights and the sin that does so easily beset us. The sins obvious in the first few verses of Hebrews 12 that the sin is the sin of giving up. 
Run with patience. The word is perseverance or endurance. You've got to run with the idea that I will not quit. I know this is going to be hard. I know it's not easy. I know a lot of things I'm going to have to do and push myself. I don't like, my body doesn't like. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. I'm going to hold fast. God would not mislead me. He's going to take care of me. And I'm not going to let such sins as quitting. And it is a sin. When you put your hand to the plow, what does it say you're not supposed to do? Look back. Because there's dire consequences of doing it. And yet it's so easy to look for an easy way. It's so easy to look for something that costs you nothing and think you get everything for it. Now, today I want to talk about one of the difficulties that I find, even though we're chastised, we talked about chastisement. One of the difficulties that a lot of people experience is in being joyful. In being joyful. You see, in spite of all the difficulties that confront Christians, we too have a cross, do we not? Jesus went on the cross. We have a cross too. And we're going to be persecuted and we're going to suffer because he said we would. It's difficult. This is the reason most people back off from this narrow way. And anybody that preaches a narrow way is usually called a cult or some extreme Christian group. The extreme because they believe you have to believe the Bible. Remember somebody said in the paper one time that this particular group believed that you must trust the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. And the article said, and they believe that. Well, see, you're not supposed to believe that. You're supposed to read that, and then you're supposed to say what the world says. Well, now we know the Bible says that, however, probably what it means is, and then you explain it away. And so many people are used to having all the hard parts explained away in the Bible that anybody that persists or pursues his way and believes the Sermon on the Mount is for today. Oh, they're some kind of an extreme group. Well, if that's what extreme is, then welcome to extremity. At least I am. I don't mind being called extreme if what they mean by that is a believer. Because how else am I going to make it? Shall I stand before God and listen to what he says and say, well, I don't really want to do that. I'm going to find somebody to tell me that that's not exactly what that says so I don't have to pay that price. And then we'll talk about people who are trying to pay that price as being extreme or cultish. Well, as somebody said years ago in my life, let the little dogs bark. I choose as an act of my own will to make a moral and ethical decision to follow Jesus Christ. Not based on what somebody else did or mother and dad or anybody else, but on a revelation given to me by him in my wasted, useless life when I was 28, my response was, this is my great hope in life. This is what I need. Everything else pales in light of it. And I can say after 40-some years, it was worth it. It's been a good life. Hadn't been easy. But it's not supposed to be easy. It's in that area, easy and hard, that most people quit and look for something easy. Because there's always some ministry somewhere that'll tell you, you don't have to do anything. Just go to church, 
Don't talk about money much, that's controversial. But go to church and just sit there, come when you can. You're all right, you're going to heaven. When Jesus comes, we're all going. And those of us that aren't perfect yet, he'll run us through some kind of machine up in heaven, just run us in there and crank us out wholly on the other side. Then we're ready to go, nothing to it. But I think the machine's on the earth. I think it's down here right now. And I think that we're gonna go through all of these things, but one of the things that he requires of us is joy. Now I've been a, a man, a human being long enough. I've been a preacher long enough. I've been a traveling preacher and a local pastor long enough in my life to know that the joy that most people have is a made up joy. We come into a, a place where joy is supposed to be the, and we just sort of put it on and then when it's over, we go back to being who we were. It's not like it's a trait or a characteristic of our life. We're not just joyful people because we're aggravated by so much. Don't know what to do with all the aggravating things in life, but when we go to church, we try to act joyful because you're supposed to. You wouldn't want to go to church and sit on the front row and just scowl. You wouldn't want to do that, would you? Of course not. But if you're supposed to be a joyful person, you can act joyful. I've been here a long, long time in light of how long people stay in places. I've seen a lot of people that don't have very much joy. It shows up. It's just somebody can say something that it has a good flavor of Christianity to it and there's no response, not even a smile. See, something's wrong. I don't know if your life is weighted down. I don't know if there's some besetting whatever in your life, but something's not the way it should be. Now listen at these verses about the way we should be and the way God wants us to be concerning, well, joy and exuberance. In Psalm 98 and verse 4. Psalm 98 verse 4. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now if you do that, you are extreme. I grew up in a Christian church. I'm not against the Christian church. I don't get that wrong. I grew up in a Christian church and it was somewhat quiet. We used to hear the choir because I was in the choir. And the choir would begin when we start the service. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That was a song that we sang. I could still sing it for you, but you wouldn't be impressed. And there was something about the way the whole thing was organized and set up to have some dignity to it. That is quiet, reserved, thoughtful dignity. Nothing was done spontaneous. Nobody would give a good shout every now, not in this church, at least not at that time. And everything was sort of done with a sign of reservation, which there was a lot of so-called respect for the quietness of God. And it was sort of done that way because this is the way we do it. And yet the psalmist says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praises. What is a loud noise? If I went, woo, would that be a noise? There's time it would be wrong to do that. If you were at a funeral, you wouldn't want to do that. 
if somebody was suffering somewhere and you were trying to console them, that wouldn't be a time to act like that. What about when we come together? Before the sermon, we set aside the first part of the service. You don't have to do the first. We can do it at the end. But we set aside a time to prepare ourselves to hear the word, get ourselves in a spiritual frame of mind by worship. And a time to let go of how you feel about Jesus. And he said, here's one of the ways he said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Woo! Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praises. Verse 5, sing unto the Lord with the harp and with uh, flutes and guitars and saxophones and keyboards, drums. Sing to the Lord with instruments. There was priests that did this. The Levitical tribe had people who were skilled in musical instruments, and they divided them into several sections. And one section would do one part of the day, another section, another section, another section. They had singers who did. They took turns constantly singing and worshiping God with music. I don't mean this rowdy music today. I mean worship music. Verse 6, with trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord. Is that good to do? I look at Psalm 100. Go across the page here, Psalm 100, and verse 1. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with sorrow. I don't get extreme on me. Nobody can be glad all the time. Well, let me see. Make a joyful noise in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with money. Well, some people think that's all we're here for. Come before his presence, how? Doesn't mention money, does it? Verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. What about that? I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with prayer. You see, you memorize that. That's the way he wants us to come. We come before him. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If you've really been redeemed, there is a gladness in your heart. If there's no gladness in your heart, you need to ask yourself, have I really been redeemed? Well, I got a lot of pressure. We all have a lot of pressure. Well, things have been tough this week. Everybody has tough weeks. That's no excuse for folding your arms and being quiet. I don't care what we've been through. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you've had a bad week, you're excused. He just says, come before his presence with thanksgiving. Hebrews speaks about giving a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that give thanks and praise unto God. Are you thankful? Are you glad that God saved you? I don't think unsaved people say much about that. I'm not saying anything to any of you out there in the world, wherever you are. I'm just saying that the Bible says with saved people, there is a gladness about what he did, not what's going on, but about what he did. There is a joy that is set before you and a joy of the moment when you realize that if you died right now, you'd be in heaven. That's therefore, what is the gloom in this world about? Jesus said, don't rejoice that the devil is subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's something about the Christian's aura, the thing that follows you around. I don't think Jesus walks around all the time with a smile on his face. I don't think like that. 
but there's a joy in your heart. You don't let things get you down. You don't let things outside of Christ control you. When you're confronted with the devil saying he's going to do this, a smile can come on your face because you can say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Therefore, those words, if you believe them, they make you glad. But a lot of people don't seem to have that. I don't mean it wrong, just a lot of people don't seem to have that. Singing, Hebrews 2 and verse 12, Jesus said, in the midst of the church, I will sing. How does Jesus sing? You ever heard him? Let's be quiet. Okay, Lord, sing. Well, I didn't hear anything either. How's he sing? In you. He's at work in you. You bear fruit unto Jesus. That's just one of them, gladness of heart. Jesus wants to sing. The prompting, it's a prompting of Christ that sings, sing unto the Lord a new song. Because when he lifted me up out of the miry clay, didn't it say he put a new song in my mouth? Hey, when I was in the world, a long time ago, when I was rowdy and foolish and ignorant, the only song I had was the one that Elvis Presley or Little Richard had. Those were old songs about something nasty and something vulgar, something that has no future, something that's destroying and rotten. But the music is loud and you get these feelings because the devil works on your emotions, making you think you like that when all the nastiness that's in there just funnels itself down into your life. You start thinking nasty, and you start talking nasty, and you live nasty. That's why when you got that kind of stuff in your life, you go to church, you can't worship. You cannot. You have a hard time even being glad about Jesus Christ because you don't live for Christ. There's no joy. There's no peace. Why, how could there be? But let a man have his eyes open and have a revelation of Jesus Christ come to his nasty life. And how God brings his presence before you and shows you what he's willing to do. He's willing to forgive you and cleanse you from all your sins. Any of you ever have a bad life? Can any of you look back at your life before Christ and see some things you're really ashamed of? Oh, God. And he says, I will not only forgive you, but I'll cast that stuff as far as the east is from the west. And he brings you to him, and something strange happens. The presence of the Lord begins to take its abode in your life. He's in there. And it's not like a sensation and not like some kind of a feeling. You can't go by feelings, but there's a reality here. I made a decision and God has forgiven me, and I feel clean. I'm not guilty anymore of all that bad stuff. I've been set free. And the natural urgings of the Holy Spirit then is to bring you to a place where you want to worship God. I want to thank you, Lord. What are you thankful for? For forgiving me. Forgiving me of all my sins. 
of setting my feet up on a rock, as I said a while ago, putting that new song in my mouth, even praise unto God, the psalmist says. He said, many shall see it and shall fear and shall turn and trust in the Lord. That's what he does in us. But when we're gloomy, when we're despondent, when we can't even at the time appointed worship God, there is really something wrong in your life. Something's wrong. Something needs to be fixed or made new. But something is wrong. Remember what David said in Psalms 51 when it was known abroad about his affair with Bathsheba? He said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. If the work that God does in people is called salvation or is saving ways, does it come with joy? Oh, it does. It does. It does come with joy. And it's supposed to be seen. It's supposed to be heard. You're supposed to do it. But if you fall back, you drop back, and you won't do it, something's wrong. No, but it isn't easy. How easy was it in Acts 16 when Paul was in prison? You know, he cast a demon out of this girl, fortune-telling spirit. And these people who controlled the girl lost their money, so they had Paul and Silas thrown in prison, beaten. And there he is in a dark dungeon cell, smell like urine, nasty and filthy and wet and just yucky. Paul was sitting down there chained with Silas, and Silas said, why do you have to deal with demons? And so why do you have to mess around with other Why can't we just have a better life than this? And Paul said, I know what you mean. I, I don't know why God dealing with us like this. You reckon we've messed up somewhere, Silas? He said, man, I don't know. Now, you know, I don't think that's what it says. I think in Acts 16, it says at about the midnight hour, Paul and Silas sang hymns. Oh, victory in Jesus my savior forever this is the day of course the chains you know the chains have a little music chick chicka chinga chick chinga chick this is a day ching you know they were probably doing all right they didn't feel good they were beat up they were hurt and painful they were bleeding but they were christians and they counted it all joy when things were going wrong because they knew god hadn't left them you know, man got saved after that, his whole family. And then Paul was thrown into prison once. And he had been beat up again. And Jesus appeared to him in the night and he said, be of good cheer. That's Jesus' instructions. Be of good cheer. And yeah, it's an option, isn't it? Sort of an option, isn't it? We don't have to do that, do we? Because most folks say, well, you have to do that to be saved. Everything has to be legal. It's not like the characteristic of a life. It's always, do I have to? Do I have to? Do I have to? Do I have to? Why don't you say, should I? Of course you should. You certainly should. Paul wrote in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. But what is the kingdom of God? The realm that God reigns in? It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
I've known a lot of people through the years. I've known people when I first got saved and things were exciting where everybody was and exuberant. I've traveled places where there was a lot of happiness and, and always smiling, talking about Jesus. And here some 20, 30 years, 40 years later, you see them now, they're hammered dead. Or as a brother of mine said, they're graveyard dead. They can't even respond to any of the things, any of the promises of the Bible. It's still a folded arm like, yeah, we've heard that. I've heard that before. Like you believe it or something. You don't believe it anymore. It has, has no meaning anymore. Something is dead. Something is dying. And the mind, the mind which has stopped being renewed begins to tell you, you're all right, man. You were there once. You heard it. You've seen it. There's no joy. Frustrated about money, frustrated about jobs, frustrated about what's going on, frustrated about the swine flu, the terrorists, and everything. Everybody just gnarly. Well, the devil's robbing. He comes to kill and to steal and destroy. He's a master at it because he does it that way too. Church services can be so dead. They can be so dry. Rivers of living water. How about a swamp? How about a dry creek bed? Shouldn't be like that. We bring it with us. Whatever we bring in here is what we get this morning. I'm not talking about you this morning. I'm talking about when people are dead. There's a dryness. And you start talking about things, they get offended. Why is the truth so offensive? Why are people so turned off and insulted or Take it personal when you tell them the truth. People like lies. You know, you're living a dead life. Oh, brother, praise the Lord. We're so... Remember they came to Isaiah? He said, man, quit talking about the Holy One of Israel. You talk about that too much. Prophesy smooth things. Then the people said, prophesy illusions. That's what a magician does. He makes you think something's just a trick. It's a falsehood, an illusion. Make up a story. Tell us we're all good when you know we're not, but tell us we are anyway. We'll come back. We've come to that in this hour right now as I'm standing here. This is where Christianity seems to have come down to. People are looking for a place to go that costs nothing, where you can get by with anything. That God is a good old boy. He's some celestial Santa Claus. He doesn't care how you sin or what you're doing. As long as you care about people or you love or you go to church, you're all right. No, you're not all right. No, you're not all right. Turn to Psalm 126 and I'll tell you what's happened. Psalms 126. Why is there no joy? Well, this is what your Bible said. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Brother Tom, he was like a man who dreamed. You ever had a good dream? I have crazy dreams. Some of them I mentioned how they turn out, so when I roll over, I go back to sleep real fast so I can see how this is going to end. I don't even know what it is when I wake up. I don't even remember it. Sometimes, oh, you have a pretty good dream. I like it when you go to bed and you wake up this morning. You just went through the whole night. Bam, it's over. Sometimes you dream. 
But let's assume it's a good dream, a dream of peaceful things, a peaceful result in your life, something you dream makes you just happy and glad. I don't mean you won the lottery, but I mean just whatever a happy dream would be. He said, when the Lord turned our captivity, the psalmist said, we were like those that dream. Verse 2, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, they are extreme. You know what the heathen say? The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for me or for us, whereof we're glad. Let me write a word up here. Captivity. It's obviously in the Bible mostly referring to when God's people were carried away captive because of their sins into a foreign land where they had to live and serve other people and other nations who really treated them bad and tried to ruin their manner of life and so forth. And then God finally brought them back. But when you're in somebody else's control, when somebody else rules your life, when you no longer have any rights of your own, when somebody else has a say-so about what you're doing, you're captive. You're in captivity. But it doesn't have to be quite that extreme, though it could be. The Bible turned the captivity of Job. Remember Job in the book of Job? Job 42 and verse 10, this man lost his family. Devastated by hurricanes and wind and weather-related Killed all of his children, all of his children, all of them. He lost the most precious thing he had. He didn't have one or two of them. He had a family full of them, and he loved them. And he lost them all. He lost his wife's respect. That's common today, too. She didn't have much good to say to him, thought he ought to curse God and die. She wasn't happy with the Lord. We call this depression, oppression. Thoughts that press down, that push you down, that keep you from having any reason to look up. Nothing's going right. Everything is going wrong. Plus, this man had infection in his skin. Some say it was boils. Who knows? I don't know what it was. But it was so bad, he had to sit on an ash heap to get some relief. And he had scraped these big old sores off of his body. Then you add to this captivity. Here comes three concerned fellows. Actually four, but here's three of his closest buddies. And they sat there with him for, what, seven days and said, didn't say a word? Put their hand in their mouth and looked at him like, man, oh man, here's Job. I mean, this guy has never done anything wrong in his life. But Job, they said, what have you done, man? Said, You've done something wrong. Job said, I haven't done anything wrong. They said, you had to do something wrong. Things like this don't just happen. You had to do something wrong. Job said, I haven't done anything wrong. This isn't fair. Quit talking to me like that. They said, we have to talk to you because we care about you. And there's something wrong. And you're proud because you won't admit your wrongs. So they went through that for a few chapters. And finally, after Job opened his mouth a little bit too much about how he was right and God was wrong, then the Lord came down in the whirlwind. That'd be impressive. And he spoke to Job. He said, who is this that speaks without knowledge? Who is this that 
has it all figured out and you're right and everybody, including God, is wrong. Stand up, Mr. Know-it-all. Let me ask you a question. Where does the wind come from? Where does it go? How does rain fall? Where do clouds come from? Who made the alligator? How did he get his skin on there? How does a whale dive so deep in the water? How can this be? Come on, Job. Then God spoke to him, and finally in chapter 42, he said, Hoo-wee. He said, I have opened my mouth, and I had no clue what I was talking about. You're altogether right. I am altogether wrong, and I repent. I'm sorry. And the Bible said God turned the captivity of Job. His physical, his mental, the stress and strain, everything that just suppresses and destroys human beings, the weak ones commit suicide. The, everything that causes that was called captivity. Captivity. There was no joy in captivity. But when God turned your captivity, he said, then our mouth was filled with laughter. We were so excited. Is laughter good? Now, I've heard of laughing movements where it was sort of required or expected that you break out in uncontrollable laughter. Maybe during the altar call, whenever you're really serious about appealing to a man's soul to come and receive you. Maybe that was the time they thought it was just hysterical. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right. But when I got filled with the Spirit, I started laughing in the Christian church. I crawled under the pew. Wasn't very many there. The ones that were there wouldn't mind. And I not only started praying in the spiritual, I got excited. I was laughing. Maybe you can't relate to this, but when God comes in to your life and he actually does something, you will laugh. You may cry too. Sometimes there's tears of joy. Didn't it say down at the very end of that psalm, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy? He that goeth forth, weeping, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Joy is a part of everything. I don't mean just a smile, amen, brother, that was real good. I'm talking about just when it's time, it's an exuberance. Driving down the road by yourself and a, a song is playing, a song that inspires you and it's okay. Woo! Somebody may pass you at that time and call somebody, but like a song we used to say, something in my heart, like a stream running free, makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be. When I think of Jesus and all he's done for me, something in my heart like a stream running free. It's natural. It is a natural thing that Christians should do. When Christians don't do it, something is wrong because it's supposed to be. When it's said in Psalm 126 and verse 2, the Lord has done great things for them, that's a testimony. Somebody can tell it. They can look and see. Over in Psalm 137, it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we hung our harps in the willows. Our tormentors, our captors, the ones who made us captive, they wanted us to sing the songs of Zion. 
to make merry because people like to see genuine joy. They really do. Even the world likes to see genuine joy and happiness. They do. It's natural to want to see things that are good and to, to see genuine happiness. Even ugly boys and girls like to see happy mom or dad. That's why they give them presents on Mother's Day or whatever day. They like to see the smile. The thoughtfulness of the, even though you're not the kind of kids you ought to be, you're thoughtful and you did something. And mama, maybe even dad, those creatures, they were made glad by it. Sometimes they cry, thank you, son. And even though you're a dog, you walk out of there and say, I'm a good boy. Because it's natural. But the Bible said, when the Lord turns your captivity, you will be like a man who dreams. It's like something in our other world. Your mouth will be filled with laughter. And he said, your tongue was singing. That's why when you went to church, you never were a singer. But now you want to sing. You don't have to be able to sing well. You can just sing a noise. Uh, but you want to. It's in there to do it. And you sing louder than you used to. And a lot of time, now this is what I did. I wanted to move down the front so I didn't have to watch people in front of me. I wanted to get down to where I couldn't see anybody and suppress my joy. Because I know back there when people, in the early days of my life, when people started getting excited about Jesus, they were so offended by this joy. We don't mind you being joyful at a political rally. You can act like a fool or a heathen. You can just shout and holler and wave your hands like this here and everybody just, woo, wearing and blowing little whistles. And go to church and say, praise the Lord. Somebody say, get your hands down, get your hands down. You're not under arrest. Get your hands down. Like there's something really wrong. And yet, when God turns a man's captivity, you can't suppress him. He'll go somewhere else if he has to, but he's going to worship God. Amen. He is going to worship. He's going to enter into the gates of the Lord with thanksgiving. Doesn't mean you have to come through the door when you get the door say, Thank you, Lord. You don't have to do that. You just come in here. It's in your heart. It's in your heart. And remember this, the source of your joy, like the source of your faith, it's Jesus. John 15, 11, he says, my joy I give to you. The words I've spoken to you shall be in you and my joy shall be in you. John 16, 26, ask what you will and you shall receive it that your joy may be full. John 17, 13, he said, I'm going to give them my word and they may have this joy of mine in their life. That's why some people don't give up and don't cave in. It's why some people endure to the end because the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's why it works. Now, our testimony should be the Lord has done great things for you folks. Your neighbor should see you under duress, see you smiling and joyful. Things haven't gone right for you. Your mother, your daddy, your brother, your sister, whoever, you have a testimony to give. You've got a testimony to live. Look in Isaiah 61. Here's a provision that has been made for you for your joy and why we should be joyful people. 
Now, I'm going to fuss. I'm going to fuss a little bit here. We're not as joyful people like we should be. We can turn it on. You can do a lot of things. You just turn a lot of things on. A preacher can live like the world all week long and turn on a little Christianity for an hour and a half. You can do that. If I can do it, you can do it. But if it's not natural, it's worthless. It's got to be there. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Remember, this was Jesus' first sermon after the temptation. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Notice this. God has sent Jesus to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison doors to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise with the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. When God plants you, this is the fruit that is produced. This is what comes forth. The oil of joy instead of mourning and moping and and whining around all the time. Have you ever noticed that when some people are joyless, they're always talking about themselves, their problems, and don't know what I'm going to do, have no solutions? It's not like they can't go to church and go, I want to praise the Lord this morning for something he, I saw in the Bible this week. I want to, you can do that and be joyless. Sometimes that's what people want in church. They want you to come out and say that, but your life may in private be all this yuck and your wrongs and your past and don't know what I'm going to do and we're not going to be able to make it and this is so and so and, you know, and then the flu's coming and I don't know how I'm going to do this and we don't have any money for God. Just constant, constant, constant negativity. Now your testimony is that God has never said anything to you that you can grab a hold of to get you out of that kind of a captivity that you're in. You're a negative, downtrodden soul. And chances are, this is the truth, but it would, oh, this is a war if you say it. Chances are you want sympathy instead of a solution. You want somebody to cry on it. Somebody always listen because we think you gotta be nice. Speaking the truth in love means you lose a friend. I don't want to lose a friend, so I won't speak the truth in love. I'll let you keep telling me all your problems, and I won't say anything back to you. Because if I say anything back to you, I know you won't like me anymore. Something's wrong with that picture. Something's wrong with that. What is captivity? Captivity means you're a prisoner. You're bound to something or to someone. Someone or something controls you. Maybe it is illness. Remember Luke 16, verse 11, this daughter of Abraham. Remember the story about this lady who had a bowed back? Some say it's just a natural occurrence. Scoliosis and probably in the family tree, or maybe an ancestral curse. It just sort of follows in the family. Probably genetic, some kind of a heady chromosomal thing in there. I mean, it's just natural. It's not like it's a devil. Well, wait a minute now. 
And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, Jesus, it says here, and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. Now she's in a bind with her back, right? This is what it says, Luke, 6, uh, Luke 13, it says. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and he said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And in verse 16, Jesus answered those who said, You can't do that on Sabbath day. Jesus said, And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed? Would you say the woman who had this back, Jesus called it a spirit, didn't he? That's what he said it was, a spirit of infirmity. Now, a lot of people would be offended if you said, well, that's a spirit. They said, well, you're extreme. Well, okay, but it's still a spirit, an extreme spirit. And her back was bowed. And Jesus said, ought not this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound? That's captivity. It's what the devil does. And I'm sure with that goes all the mental games. What do I have to do to get right? Why won't the Lord look at me? Why, 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 why? I mean, all that stuff. You go to church and hear about the promises, and then you're made aware, well, I ain't got them. And then you feel offended, and the preacher knows you're offended, so he backs off. He don't want to say any more about it because he don't want to offend you, even though he's telling you the truth. How about Acts 10? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed to the devil. Is healing oppression? Of course it is. You like being sick? Well, you need deliverance then if you do. Woman's bowed back didn't have to be. It was a spirit of infirmity. She was bound. Captivity means you can be bound physically, you can be bound mentally with resentment, ill will, feelings, a spirit of bitterness. That's a spirit too. It just gets deep in you and just makes you wish somebody else would just go away. It's not Christian. It's not supposed to be, but people allow that thing in their life. And when they go to church, joy, if you knew what I was going through, you wouldn't be talking about joy in the Lord. <laughs> and I would say to you, you need to trust the Lord. You need to cast all your care over on him, for he cares for you. You've got no excuse for being an ugly, nasty, acting person in church like that. Jesus went through so much for you. Then he came out in his first sermon. He said, I have come to set the captives free and to open prison doors and to loose the chains of bondage. How dare you keep them? How dare you just resign yourself to going through this and just, how dare you? How dare you ignore the wonderful redemption that was brought by the Redeemer and then turn your head whenever it's spoken of and question the validity of it in order to what, seek sympathy? What's wrong with the church? What's wrong with people? This book hasn't changed. The same joy some knew 30 years ago, it's still here. The world's changing people. God is changing people. 
Just like Malachi said, the righteous were becoming more righteous and the unrighteous were becoming more unrighteous. The gap is widening between those who are and those who aren't. It's showing up after 40, 30, 20 years. Now it's starting to show up in the way you're living, the way you're acting. The joy is gone. Turn to Isaiah 5. This is how captivity comes. Now let me remind you that in John 15, 11 and John 17 and 13, Jesus referred to his word and that which follows those who receive his word being joy. Joyful. So what God says is intended to make you joyful. Now here's what Isaiah 5.13 says. Tell me if this is true or not. My people have gone into captivity because they don't go to church. Didn't say that. My people have gone into captivity because... This is why all the things about captivity, being a prisoner, being bound and not able to get out of this and just staying in the same old, same old, this rut, just this, this captivity, the thing that keeps you, holds you down. He said, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Let me ask you a question. Is there power in knowledge? Is there or not? I'm talking to you here this morning. Is there power in knowledge? If there is power in knowledge, then there's power only in knowing something right. right. You can know a lot of things and know most of it wrong. But when you know the right thing the right way, there's power in it. Because the power is in his word. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Truth will make you free. If you know it. You shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. That means then, like Jesus said in John 15, 11, I've given you my word that my joy might be in you. My joy. I'm the living word. What's in the word is what I do. I'm giving that to you. It's in you. He said in John again, John 17, verse 13, he said, you know, the world, they hate these people because I gave them the word. And the people of the word, the people who know the word, are people who are beginning to discover. The Holy Spirit said he will show you things to come. And he sent his word and healed them. And Proverbs speaks about deliverance through his word. And so we're beginning to grow. This is that growing thing. And the more this becomes active in your life, gladness of heart comes with it. If nothing is going on. If nothing is working, nothing is changing in your life. It's the same old, same old life as usual. Church, so what? Do we have to go? When's he going to quit? Captivity. It comes because people aren't listening and aren't applying the word. Somehow we think if we go to church, we're all right. You don't have to believe anything. Just go. I mean, go to a good place where they do good things and it's all right. But what good is all of that if what you hear is not what God said? And if you hear what God said, what good was it to hear if you don't apply it to your life? And you can't apply it to your life if you don't know it. Jesus asked Pharisees once, he said, why don't you hear my word? You know what he said? He said, because you can't. You can't hear it. 
You don't have a taste for it. You can't taste and see that the Lord is good because you have no taste for the Lord's ways and the Lord's things. You don't have any flavor in your mouth. You don't have that. You're not interested in that. You're so full of tomorrow, your job, your schedule. You're so full of yesterday and all the things you did wrong, and, and you're so full of that and where you're going to eat in just a minute. That It's like the Lord knocking on the door and nobody's home. It was a good hour, but you didn't get anything out of it. That's why we don't have joy. That's why our joy is suppressed. A lack of knowledge. There's another place in the Bible that talks about a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed. They lose the race. They come short of the finish line because of a lack of knowledge. Somebody should have taught them better or they should have gone where they could have been taught the truth and not spared their feelings. Because the truth is not just found anywhere. It's like when you find the truth, you sell all that you have to go get it. You know the illustration? The pearl of great pride. You don't find it everywhere. You just don't. But when you do find it, wherever you are, you should hold on to it. Listen to this. Paul wrote in the book of Romans. He said, chapter 1, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. People are just misinformed, and captivity comes because of misinformation. Bow your heads with me. Father, in Jesus' name, make this word real to us. Make our hearts open. Bring life where there is no life. And bring joy where the flame is barely flickering. Make us to burn. I thank you for the privilege of preaching. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who alone can illumine our minds and give us understanding. I thank you for that because he does that. You have set before me the sheep of your pasture. These are not my people, they're yours, Lord. And you know whose hearts are right, and you know whose hearts needs to be changed. Be gracious unto us, O God. But do your deeper work, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.